possible for you to live a double life. Come to campus, behave a certain way with your peers on campus. Go back to the township and then remove your mask and behave another way. And I think that's the thing we don't talk about. Why say, don't we talk about that? You know, you also should be grateful you're, you're in university. What is your problem? How many other people want to be here? <laughs> you know, and you're here complaining that, oh my God, this is uncomfortable for me. I feel like this is a double fake life or whatever you want to call it. You're ungrateful. You've made it. You're here. Do what you need to do. Get that degree and go get a job and be part of the market. <laughs> you know. Welcome to episode six of Are We Our Work. I'm Tiffany Ibrahim. Are We Our Work is a platform for peer exchange that gathers and shares people's career experiences across different professional networks in South Africa. In this episode, Alicia and Lovu remembers the economic, cultural, and social shocks that almost stunted her school and university career. Alicia is a politics lecturer at the University of Cape Town. What do you think perpetuates this hierarchical and competitive way of being in schools, especially from such a young age? Like, it sounds like you were confronted with that reality way younger than matric. I think the teachers are very aware of what happens beyond high school. And a lot of us, and even our parents, but a lot of us in school, I think we're not really thinking that much about it. We're just really trying to get through this. But I think my first realization in terms of how school was going to impact me, you know, just beyond, you know, the fences of the school was when a teacher said to me, you know, the way you're behaving right now, I think that I would I will not write you a reference. How old were you? Uh, I was probably in grade 10, wow. if not 11. I didn't understand what she was talking about. But that thing affected me for a long time because I was just, of course, chatting to my friend and then she said, keep quiet, noise in the class. And then, I don't know, maybe I continued. But the way she responded to me was not to say I'm going to like hit you or anything or come and stand here and face the wall she said those words and she said my dear I'm not going to write you a reference mm. and then I was like reference you know at that time I was like what's this reference for but I knew that that, that was serious I didn't know what it was but it, it sounded serious um, but I don't think I asked anyone about it I didn't go home to say what does this mean I just knew that there's something that is beyond the school context. Like this woman is basically saying she has a hand in my future. Yeah, that's traumatized me a lot actually when I got to Vasti and I needed references. I was like, oh. So actually I made sure that I don't get a reference from my high school. (laughs) (laughs) The reason, the only reason why I even applied to university was because I had a friend comes and says, yeah, girl, I'm applying, and I say, applying to what? And he said, to universities. And then I was like, wow, okay, how do we do this? Can you also get me a form? And when when Vitz accepted me, I remember at that time, my parents were like, how are we going to pay those fees? You know, it was more like, I'll see when I get there kind of situation. So you, you start off like that, and you're stressed. You're um, already in your first year, and you're sitting in the lecture room, and you're thinking, how? am I going to even pay for this? Mm -hmm. So your mind is 
all over the place. You're trying to listen to the lessons, but at the same time, you're, you're like, yo, March is coming. They start sending these letters. You need to pay by this date. And so it was a life of your parents taking out loans, but being lucky in second year, getting nest first. So, so even the fees thing. So for me, I always say, ah, university, undergrad, trauma. But also, I think at that point, I recognized the magnitude of the space. Like it was, the lecture halls were big, so I knew this was not intimate. Walking into that lecture hall, I didn't imagine that I would be with 400 other students. Um, and so what does this mean for me if I go to that? Also, I saw a lot of white people. So to be really honest, I, I never had a white teacher in my entire life. So there were too many shocks mm. that, you know, you need to adapt to that space and understand what's happening. There were a lot of things that just shocked me. You know, I saw students coming in with cars. And here I was, you know, the idea of going to university is that you must work after and then hopefully you can buy a car. So I didn't understand that people can come to school driving cars. I, did, I mean, also it was a huge change from high school that in high school we had a tuck shop, but really it wasn't that serious. People were buying hot dogs. Here, it's like people come with these grapes. Like, it's very fancy, man. Spring water. Like, who buys water? <laughs> so, so there are all of these things that I just thought were very strange. I guess I, I learned early on that the only way I'm going to survive this space is if I do not compare myself to anybody here. Mm. Um, I think I had to learn that in first year already. Like, month three. I was like, okay, if you're going to make it out of this place, do not compare, do not look left or right, just look forward because, ooh, the pressure. Like, I, I, I have never seen anything like that. At some point, I was like, this is a fashion place. You know, people coming into the lecture halls, holding like handbags. I was still having that mentality of you need to have a school bag. You know, we're coming to school here. Um, but I could see that people had makeup on, they had like earrings, um, so there was a whole lot of culture shock. It was tough. And did it affect your learning? Did it affect your experience of the classroom content-wise? No, mm. actually no. I think these were, for me, I call them no, it's a noise, external noises. Like you're trying to do this thing, but there's just noise and you have to, to learn to block it out. I was very aware that none of those things matter because I kind of picked that up in high school. I saw where I came from, and I saw that eventually it didn't matter, um, that I could catch up with the system, um, that I could excel. So I knew that at the, at the end of the day, people did come with their really fancy outfits and got dropped off in like fancy cars, but still got no academic recognition. And socially, how did you find your circle? For me, it wasn't important to mm. have like a best friend um, on campus, because I thought I saw that this would be a forced thing if we were not coming from the same background. So I preferred to either hang out with people that were not South African because then we couldn't talk about the schools we came from, <laughs> you know, because that's the thing I noticed when I came in first year, that people, that's like the first question people asked, which school, which high school did you go to? And then I got to learn about these schools that I've never heard of um, because I was like from the far south, you know, so nobody knew where I went to school. And I also didn't know where their schools were, like where these schools were. But they all knew each other. Like, yeah, we played hockey with you or something like that. So there was always this whole social network that existed that I wasn't a part of. So I learned early on in first year that to navigate the system is going to be hard. I don't have the right high school, first of all. 
Um, and so I naturally gravitated towards people that were from outside the country. I had a friend from Cameroon, a friend from Kenya, a friend from Nigeria. So I was just sick of, you know, all those um, imagined or created sort of networks that are based on institutions that people went to. Um, and I just wanted to genuinely know people and be friends with them for who they are. So I ended up just really getting out of those spaces um, and saying, I am not interested. Was it obvious to you that you would proceed with honors and with masters and eventually a PhD? Definitely not. In mm. fact, when I entered university, I never ever thought I would do postgraduate studies. I had one mission to get a job. There was, um, I mean, a another side to this in that I was working in the library and I used to see my friends studying in the library. So that was tough because we were not allowed to sit or read. We had to be walking up and down helping students. This is work. This is not play. So there were parts of me that felt very sad, you know, to say, why is life so unfair? I want to also be sitting there and reading, doing my readings, but because I need the money, I have to do this and actually watch my friends. Like my friends would walk in and be like, hey, Alicia. And I'd be like, hey. And then they'd be sitting there with their highlighters and everything on the table. And I just had to finish my like two-hour shift. Did you feel resentful to, or maybe even jealous, um, of not having the kind of support along your journey that maybe other more privileged people had? Um, I think that maybe I could have been jealous, but the important thing is I didn't understand how much support was necessary. I think only later do I realize, like now, as old as I am, that, hey, it's actually important to offer that support because then things could turn out differently. At that time, I didn't think... I could see that people had things, material things, but I wasn't... I didn't know how whether there was a correlation between being wealthy materially and then the kind of emotional support and the resources you'd be exposed to in terms of contacts. It's, it's, it's quite remarkable that here you are about to finish your PhD, but when listening to your story, it sounds like you just happened to be at a right place at a right time. Honours, everything changed. Then I started to understand the value of mentorship. I got a specific supervisor who then was like, oh, you want to do this work? Great. Did that work. You should do your master's, you know. What for? <laughs> you know. And I think for the first time I started opening up to say, hey, I can't afford this master's degree thing. It sounds great. But like I even came to this honours by chance. I'm looking for a job. And then, then he started to guide me and say, you know, you can do both. You don't have to choose one of you know or the other. If you if you so you ask me genuinely like, what is your concern? Do you just want to have money, or do you think you're good at what you're doing? And do you think if you had money, you would stay and do research? Mm. So he started to ask me challenging questions, that forced me to think exactly about what I wanted, what I enjoyed, and what my plan was. And for the first time, I was like, hmm, okay. Then I got exposed to the so-called privileges of being a student. You know, I got to travel for the first time I left the country. And this is all because I'm doing post-grad studies. Um, mm -hmm. I could meet the president in Mauritius. You know, for the first time, I was like, yeah, thank you. 
for saying I should go back to school because if I didn't, I wouldn't have applied for a passport. <laughs> you know, if I didn't, I wouldn't be missing president, uh, meeting President Becky. Then I got straight distinctions for for my courses because then it it was obvious to me that I had stress that I wasn't aware of. But the minute the thing I've been crying about was available to me, I could now. I wasn't staying at home. I had a roommate. I could stay closer to campus in Bramfontein for the first time. All these years, I was using a taxi. Used to spend hours on the road. I'd even sleep there two hours because you know it's far, like over forty kilometers to go home, in traffic, getting out of town. That was my struggle for four years in university. And I said to my supervisor, "It's enough. Do you know how hard it is to walk from Bree up Mandela Bridge and the rain is on you and you're rushing for an eight a.m. class? I don't want this life. It's been great, but I'm out." Um, but I think he recognized that. Okay, if someone tells you that their main problem is finances. You've got to solve that problem. That changed everything for me, and that's when I realized that oh, actually, I do enjoy what I do. It's just that the problem was the financial stress. It was just the basics of being able to pay my own transport and buy my own food and stay close to campus so I could concentrate and use the resources on campus, because at home I didn't have internet. So you can imagine you don't have internet at home to research. There's no computer. You don't have a laptop. I mean, it's a disaster. Um, and no one can flourish in those con- conditions. And for me, I always say, the only reason why I was not a straight A student in undergrad was because I lacked the resources. I had to leave campus five o'clock latest because I'm going to a taxi rank. Cannot leave when it's dark. But what did what did that mean? I can't do research at home. There is no internet. Everything I did, typing my assignments, all had to happen on campus. But I also have classes throughout the day. So I had a limited amount of time to engage in this whole academia thing, and people take that for granted. I genuinely believe that what happens in the university, or what students struggle for, is just an extension of what's really happening in communities. Um, students come from the community, you know. As much as we try to make university this elite, you know, institution where the brilliant come in, we cannot distance people from their lived realities. Outside of the institution, like I, I use myself as an example. I came into university and then I went back to my reality. I went to an institution that said you've got to research and give us an essay, but I didn't have the resources to do that when I got home. That was my reality. Home did not give me the space and environment to succeed in university. These two worlds are not meeting. Um, it's a very strange setup that we are in. Um, where there's an expectation for students to perform, yet the, we are ignoring the fact that they come from somewhere, and that these two worlds don't necessarily, you know, meet each other. There is a conflict between the majority of people's reality outside of the institution, and when they have to come here and perform, you know, perform sometimes what I can call the culture, which is I don't know created by who, but there is a certain way. Of doing things, you know, there is. I knew that there was an institutional culture. Nobody gave me a manual and said, "Read. This is how people here behave." If you don't think your accent is polished enough, you might not raise your hand in class. These are the unsaid things. Nobody tells you that this is how things work. You sort of learn them as you get into the institution. That people speak a certain way, and you know the English. <laughs> Has to do also how you speak has to do with which school you came from. You, we are presented as if we are these people in society that have made it, 
mm-hmm. you know, into the space. Mm. Yet nobody considers the fact that many more could have made it had they had the resources. And some of us are just lucky to be there. How many people have been left behind? And so for me, I've never seen the university as, oh, this is like creme de la creme. This is like the elite of the society. No. I, I always knew and understood that there are a lot of people left behind. As much as I applied to that institution by chance, how many of my classmates in high school that didn't get that opportunity that could have qualified to enter the university space? So it is not made up of people that could access the institution. You are either lucky like myself or you had the resources and the advice and the kind of mentorship you know, that would then lead you on this path. But to pretend and claim that everyone that's here is because they are the best in society is actually not true. Mm. What is education to you now? Hmm. It's nice. It's a nice idea to say that education, of course, is a backbone of any society um, because you need people to be trained, you know, to do all these things that need to be done. Um, Yet at the same time, I ask myself, do people understand who they are and the world they live in? So for me, education really, today I appreciate it more for being able to understand when something is wrong and when something is right. That is important. Some people can call it a lot of things, EQ, what, what, but there are certain things that you can't be taught necessarily like in a handbook, that read this, read that. Beyond the coursework and the content of the courses, now I'm so grateful that I have had an education because it's helped me to understand and actually make sense of my own life and where I want to be, where I want to go, and how I actually relate with other people. But what's interesting for me is that now, at your current place and stage, you think about education more informally and you think about education beyond a university degree or certificate, um, which is ironic given that the institution has often perpetuated a very elite, confined and ivory tower mm. value of education. Um, and it just got me thinking that maybe that's also what you contribute to this space, is all of the unspoken, informal mm unrecognized attributes that contribute to a human being's life Mm. while in an institution but not necessarily perpetuating institutional constraint um, and vision or lens onto a student. That is spot on. I think the other thing we have to be aware of is that violence has been inflicted in history in the name of education. Um, when you think about policies, apartheid as a policy, think about Hitler if you want to and how that was done. You had the most educated people sitting around the table devising a strategy to kill other people. So it doesn't mean that educating people, people necessarily use it for positive things. You know what I'm saying? And that's why building character is so important, that people learn what they want to learn. I'm in a politics department. Uh, There's a competition of ideologies. People read different things from Marxist ideas to whatever. Some will call themselves radicals, whatever they want to call themselves. And from that point of view, education is powerful in the sense that if we read history, 
It is the same thing that has given others the power, right, to oppress. Are We Our Work forms part of a long-term research project that documents career experiences and labor market practices in South Africa. If you would like to participate in the research going forward, visit areweourwork.com to find out how you can share your work-related experiences. This episode was created and produced by me, Tiffany Ibrahim. Sound and editing by Dean Salant. Recording support by Yogan Sullivan. The music is by Vuma Levin and can be found on his album called In Motion. The episode cover was designed and illustrated by Lauren Mulligan. To stay up to date on the podcast and future episodes, follow Are We Our Work on Instagram and Twitter. Thanks for listening.